you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Today, we're joined by UC San Francisco Medical Center professor and infectious disease specialist, Dr. Peter Chen Hong. Sir, so good to have you with us on this Friday. So great to be on, Larry. Uh, happy Friday to you. Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, let me ask you about the staffing at UCSF. How are, how are you folks doing? Not too well, actually. Um, sad to say we have more than a thousand employees out at this moment and oh. um, things are not looking that great. Boy, a thousand people. I know it's a large facility, but that's that's a huge hit. Um, what are some of the ways that they're handling that shortage? I think um, delays in the lab, uh, trying to not call uh extra, you know, uh, technical support uh, unless absolutely needed. So we got some guidance around that. I think in terms of staffing, uh, it's really tough uh, in the hospital. I think a lot of people have had to be called in uh, to relieve some of the staff, uh, traveling nurses, of course. But what it's going to lead to is just, you know, some more fatigue and burnout, unfortunately. Uh, understandably. And and are you seeing any sort of a plateauing in patients coming in? We know that some of the areas where Omicron appeared first, it does appear that uh, the, the rate of increase in cases is slowing or that it's plateauing. So we're not seeing in the hospitals any decline yet. It's continuing to rise, uh, unfortunately. But, um, you know, in the community, I think we're hoping that what we're seeing now is a plateau slightly. Now, in our promo earlier, I, I said we would ask you for your best educated guess on when we in California might plateau with Omicron. And given what you're seeing elsewhere, what you're seeing here, are you willing to take a stab at that? Yeah, definitely. I think we're probably going to plateau, start turning the curve this week or next week. A little bit earlier, we started uh, two weeks later than uh, New York and D.C., but I think my hypothesis is that, you know, it's warmer in California in general, so we can use the outdoors a little bit more. There's no choice in the East Coast with these frigid temperatures right now. So I think we may, and also we got a little bit advanced warning so that, um, you know, we, we may be a little bit uh, earlier than two weeks, which is kind of the head start we had on them. All right. Very good. Let's get to some listener questions. Uh, We have, uh, let's see, uh, 
We have Luke in Larchmont Village who emailed, Can we be so sure that increased vaccination rates will result in the possible end of the pandemic? If we look at Australia, they have 90% plus vaccination rates and Omicron is running wild down there. Should we be thinking of solutions besides increasing the vaccination rate to get out of the pandemic? That's a great question from Luke. So actually, we have some science to back up um, my thoughts on this. And the science shows that even though uh, vaccines are not great at always preventing infection, they're superb at preventing serious disease. So, you know, if we look at our hospitals, we're still at around 50% of last winter surge. And that variable is vaccination, apart from the, variab- the variables associated with the variant. But um, we also know that if you get boosted, your prevention of infection goes from about 0% or 20% with two doses to about maybe 65 or 70% with a boost. And again, your prevention of serious disease goes from about 65, 70% to close to 90%. So uh, not so good at infection with two doses, better with a booster, but even with two doses, good for serious disease. So it, it, I mean, it sounds like even if it doesn't necessarily bring the pandemic itself to a close sooner, it certainly takes the relief, you know, it's a relief valve on hospitals. And so at this point, that's that's sort of priority number one. Yes, definitely. We're, we're, we're not seeing, and also the severity of the disease is less um, in this time around. And I, I'm pretty convinced that vaccinations have something to do with that. Because again, even though they were less severe in South Africa too, in terms of going to intensive care unit, uh, run on ventilators, um, they are a younger population and we have much more um, comorbidities and older and immunocompromised populations. And nevertheless, we're still not seeing a run on ventilator use. So again, that really speaks, I think, to having more vaccine immunity that led to the you know, outcome right now. Chance to ask questions of Dr. Peter Chin Hong at AT Comments at kpcc.org. Please include your first name and location. Uh, this is from Joyce in Lake Forest. Emailed, when debating whether to get tested after exposure, what factors should we consider? I was in a meeting for an hour. We were all masked, but one of the participants later tested positive. Yes, yeah, so in that situation, the participant who tested positive um, with masking on, of course, it also depends on ventilation and what kind of mask you use and the duration of the meeting. An hour is probably okay for a surgical mask um, at this moment with Omicron. But uh, in terms of testing, you don't want to do it too soon if you're using a rapid test. You want to wait at least three days. You're going to increase the sensitivity if you have symptoms. If you don't have symptoms and you're negative, I think... Uh, you know, and everybody else got COVID in that meeting, then you may want to repeat it with a PCR or repeat the rapid test in two days after that. So day five. All right. Um, Let's see. We have uh, Stacy in Glassell Park. I was vaccinated and boosted, then got a mild case of Omicron. It's 14 days after onset of symptoms. I still have some nasal congestion. Am I considered no longer contagious? Should I have a negative rapid test before returning to work? My rapid test on day 12 was positive. First of all, Stacey, I hope you're doing well. Um, you're 
no longer transmissible after 10 days without it. You don't need to have a test, even if you may have symptoms. Symptoms can sometimes last for a while. For example, you know, if you got a cold, you know that your cough can last for a few weeks after. So symptoms by itself after 10 days is not, uh, you don't need a test to show that you're not transmissible to the rest of the world. In fact, many people think Omicron peaks earlier and ends earlier than some of the other variants. And that 10 day rule was based on other variants. So you're probably even more uh, protected from the rest of society when you exit at 10 days. Uh, we just received word that LASA, the L.A. Homeless Services Authority, has announced a one-month postponement of its annual homeless count due to the surge of COVID-19 cases. It was originally planned for the last week of this month. The count has now been pushed back to the last week of February. That from the L.A. Homeless Services Authority. Uh, Pasadena had announced uh, a couple of days ago, I believe, that it was also delaying its uh, count of those living in encampments and unhoused in Pasadena. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chen Hong, UC San Francisco Medical Center infectious disease specialist. He joins us weekly and has for uh, well nigh two years at this point. We're so appreciative. What a great opportunity for us to get answers to the questions. And it seems like the complexity of the questions hasn't uh, abated at all in the two years. There's still, with every new variant, we have a whole host of new questions to be asked about at 866-893-KPECC. Um, Let's see. Uh, Susan in Seal Beach emailed, uh, what is Dr. Chen Hong's recommendation for the length of time to wait following infection before getting boosted? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, I would probably wait. um, The old recommendation is waiting three months. But, you know, anytime within three months after your last infection is a good time to get boosted. You don't want to be boosted too soon after infection because it may increase your symptoms. Um, and so that's kind of where the three month uh, recommendation will come from. You know, it's sort of like at the, you'd still be protected from the antibodies from the infection at that point. Dave walking his pet goats in the beautiful Arroyo Seco of Pasadena. Dave, that's one of the great walks in L.A. And so glad uh, you emailed us while down there with your goats, uh, probably eating uh, weeds there. Uh, After two years of masking, hand washing, social distancing and vaccinating, I finally became sick for a few days last week. Everyone asked if I was going to test. I said no. Uh, The odds were I had Omicron. I was going to act as if so in a period of test shortage. Uh, that seems to be a common sense approach. Am I wrong? Dave is definitely not wrong. And also, I love goats as well. Isn't that so, great? I hope Dave, uh, enjoy them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, right now, the chances of, of having Omicron, if you have the sniffles, is really, really high. So, if you can't get a test, assume that you have it and take the necessary precautions that is isolating for at least five days while waiting for a test. So, anytime you get the test, it's going to be good that and depending on when you get the test, it can be informative. If you get it late, then it can help you exit isolation if it's a negative test. We have uh, Carolyn Whittier emailed us, since Omicron is now the most prevalent variant, does that mean Delta is no longer around for people to get? No, Delta is definitely still around, um, maybe a little bit more in the West Coast, but still Omicron is more than 90% of the West Coast, we believe. Um, 
in fact, some of the people who are really, really sick in the hospital, uh, we think might have Delta. And that's a great point because, again, not everything is Omicron and certainly it's not Omicron all over the world. So if you're traveling, uh, you don't want to necessarily, um, you know, let your guard down at any point. We have Barbara in the city of Orange said, what are your thoughts on the Pfizer Paxlovid antiviral COVID drug? Will it be more available? It helped me recover in two days. That's amazing, Barbara. I, I really love the potential of Paxlovid. I think it's going to really change how we approach the disease. Um, it's, again, 89% uh, effective at preventing hospitalizations. Uh, if taken within three days, 88% if taken within five days, it's going to be more and more available. I think at least uh, 10 million doses this year, but trickling in right now, not, not for everyone. So in the beginning, probably restricted to the most vulnerable uh, over time, it'll be like anyone can get it because it will be like Tamiflu. You, you, you have a positive, you get a prescription called into Walgreens, you go pick it up, you take it for five days and you have it. All right. We have uh, Susan in Seal Beach. Are we entered closer to developing a vaccine or boosters that can address multiple and future variants? Uh, Susan, I think Dr. Fauci just talked about this uh, within the past day or two about the potential of universal coronavirus vaccines. Yes. Yeah, so people are definitely working on a universal vaccine, um, which will not only be good for coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-2, but probably the other things like the regular, the original SARS, MERS that you can get in the Middle East associated with camels, um, uh, and so and maybe other coronaviruses that can give you the common cold. So I think that is a big focus of development right now, and you know, and and may help us sort of navigate prevention, not just you know serious disease, which these vaccines are good with, probably for years after you get a booster, but even against infection. Dr. Chen Hong, Melissa, Melissa in El Sereno emailed, if all members of a household have tested positive for COVID within a week or two of each other, is it necessary to continue masking within the house while quarantining? So if everybody in the house is defined positive or if people have had COVID recently and then somebody else got COVID uh, subsequently, uh, they're all going to be, the, the people who got it before are going to be protected uh, from uh, Omicron for sure, and even against Delta, because from South Africa, there's data showing that if you get Omicron, those antibodies uh, uh, work against Delta, but not in the reverse, as everyone knows, because everyone's getting Omicron now, even if you've had Delta before. So the answer is yes uh, to Melissa. Michelle in Santa Monica emailed us, are antibody tests uh, of any value? A friend has had antibody tests that say she has immunity, so she's basing COVID booster decisions on that info. Is it wise? No, it's not wise because um, it's not just an antibody test, yes, no. It's the level of antibodies, and these numbers have not been standardized. They're just good to know if you've had COVID before. Um, that's one type of antibody testing. And then the other type, which is a spike antibody testing, tells you if you have antibodies from the original two vaccines, which I assume Michelle is referring to. But again, um, you know, we don't know what that antibody yes means. And I would definitely not use it uh, as a way not to get a booster.
All right, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Peter Chen Hong, UC San Francisco Medical Center, infectious disease specialist. So many great questions. I know I say this all the time, but you are so smart. Uh, I just, I'm so impressed with our AirTalk audience and things I wouldn't even think to ask, and this is my job. So thank you. That's, that's why we take these questions, because it's a tremendous service, and to have these experts available is a privilege. We appreciate it so much. Joaquin in Brea said, Dr. PCH said, surgical masks are not as effective against Omicron. I've worked as a gym instructor for two years during the pandemic, yet to be infected. I use them often. How ineffective are surgical masks really? So I think, you know, surgical masks, I, I wouldn't say they're ineffective. They're actually my favorite all-around mask to wear if I'm just going in, and even in the age of Omicron, to store and not spending a time. But the longer you stay in an indoor, poorly ventilated space, the the less effective surgical mask becomes. So, you know, one of the earlier questions was about, you know, that meeting where you were in there for an hour and everyone's masked. And if they were wearing surgical masks, that would be fine even with Omicron. But if you wear a KN95, so I'll give you a perspective. So surgical masks without vaccines from the data would probably give you an hour of protection if everyone's wearing it. Um, if you wear KN95 or N95 masks, uh, you'd have at least, um, you know, um, if it's well fitted, you can have up to 2,500 hours of protection. So that's kind of the scale of difference. And you can increase the, 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 the protection of a surgical mask by just putting a cloth mask over it if you can't get an N95 or KN95. One of the things I, I found is, because uh, I recently switched from a surgical to uh, an N95, is um, my glasses don't fog up anymore with the N95, which I guess was an indicator with the surgical. I wasn't able to get it tight enough around the bridge of my nose to avoid the fogging. Exactly. I mean, that's a great um, test. Um, and you can also increase the fit by tying the air loops uh, into a knot to adjust to your particular face. Um, and, and that might, you know, if, you, if you're fogging up your glasses um, still, then and try to switch to KN95 or N95. Uh, Bill emailed us, have researchers ever studied, or do we know about, whether there are asymptomatic cases of influenza, people spreading influenza while not having symptoms? And how might the study of COVID inform other areas of infectious disease research as we go forward? I think that's an amazing question. Uh, they have been um, some studies of influenza, much more with COVID, actually, um, that uh, people can definitely spread uh, while asymptomatic. Um, you know, and I would say probably it's an order of not that much, probably 10% of cases or less. Uh, with Omicron, to just give you a scale of why this is so transmissible, data from South Africa shows that it's about uh, up to 30% of people have no symptoms, and it's probably higher uh, with a vaccinated group. If you think about vaccination, it probably may minimizes your symptoms. And, um, you know, so a lot of people are walking around without knowing that they have uh, infection. But we also know that when you're symptomatic, you have a higher viral load, so you're more likely to transmit uh, that infection. So in terms of the original question, yes, I think not only will we study some of these uh, outcomes uh, more in a more detailed fashion in the future with other infectious diseases, but we would probably learn to protect ourselves better uh, by wearing masks uh, in public when it's flu season, for example, and that could drive down 
people getting sick and hospitalizations. Rick in San Jose says, I recently did some travel. I'm now staying at a hotel since I have an immunocompromised girlfriend at home. How long should I continue staying at the hotel and isolate? And when should I get tested? That's a great question from Rick. So if you're coming back from a trip, um, you know, a, a safe day for testing is day five when you come back. But because Omicron is thought to peak uh, sooner, uh, day three might be okay. Uh, and definitely if you have symptoms uh, and you test and it's negative, try to repeat that if, you, if it was a rapid test with a PCR. All right, 866-893-KPECC. But the preferred contact for your question, comments at kpecc.org. Stephen Longbeach emailed, do we have numbers of people hospitalized with Omicron who have received boosters? I haven't seen that mentioned anywhere. And Steve wants to add thank you to Dr. PCH. I'm writing him in for a humanitarian award for his countless hours of informative, timely, and calm guidance for the past 22 months. Here, here, Steve. Seconded here. Uh, So do we have the numbers on people who've been fully vaccinated and boosted but getting breakthrough Omicron? First of all, I want to thank Steve for his kind words. Um, It's been my absolute pleasure to be on with you, Larry. And I agree with you with the staff. They've been so superb um, working with them. And many of them, I feel like I know them as well. Um, In terms of Steve's question, uh, there hasn't been a lot of data around boosting, uh, in particular, currently in the U.S. But we do have data that, um, again, if you're boosted, uh, that boosting prevents about... uh, 90% 90% of infections, uh, hospitalizations. So I think um, that's from other, not from the UK studies. So I think that, you know, if we extrapolate, it is actually preventing people from going to the hospital. And in my own experience last week I was on, I would say that pretty much no one that I saw who was hospitalized was boosted. They were all pretty much more than 90% unvaccinated still. And the other 10% were immunocompromised individuals. Amy and Torrance emailed us, have there been 12 other variants of COVID? That is the other Greek letters between Alpha and Delta and then those before Omicron. <laughs> That's a great question. I think, you know, the next uh, letter should have been uh, XI, but because it um, looked, it spelled the same way as the president of China, it was, uh, I, that was a rumor anyway, that they passed over. It's a and sensitive a common name. <laughs> Yeah, it's a common name in, in, in many cultures. So I think they passed over that letter, but all the other uh, Greek letters that, uh, have been taken. All right. And, and does every um, variant actually get a designation or do some come and go so quickly? They, they just, you know, don't gain a, enough of a foothold to even, you know, get a Greek letter. No, some don't get Greek letters. Like um, the recent variant that everyone was scared about was the one in France, um, and that didn't even get a Greek letter. It was called IHU, based on the in- the institute that isolated it near Marseille. Uh, so they only get a Greek letter when it rises to the level of variant of interest and definitely variant of concern. So Omicron got a Greek letter in record time. Like we were eating Thanksgiving dinner, and then in a couple of days, it got a Greek letter. All right. And the rest are sort of underachievers. They they don't get that designation. Uh, Linda emailed us, if Omicron is less likely to cause serious disease, why are hospitalizations going up? 
they're going up for a few reasons. Um, the first reason overall is that Omicron is infecting so many people. Um, you know, we have record numbers of cases in the population, as people know, um, even compared to last winter, um, that even a smaller proportion or a large number of people is enough people who are at risk of going to the hospital. The second reason is it's so transmissible that, uh, and this gets to the point of how we are counting hospitalizations. You know, people are coming in for something else, and because we're screening everyone uh, who comes in, uh, they may come in for a hip replacement, but they also have Omicron, but they're not coming in for Omicron. That's, we're probably about 30% of those in the hospital right now, and the rest is real uh, disease from Omicron. And, and, the, and so that, those are some of the nuances about why hospitals are, are being um, pushed. And the third reason is because staff who reside in the community are also being uh, isolating at home, a hospital bed isn't just the patient, it's the people taking care of it. So they've had to shut down some units just because they didn't have any staff in some hospitals. So it's limiting the capacity of hospitals. And final question for you is from Ian in Huntington Beach. Do we think the social distancing of six feet is really far enough? No, I think social distancing six feet in a risky situation like indoors where these Particles can linger in the air like dandelions. Uh, it's not enough. But social distancing is just one strategy. Um, and again, with Omicron, you just want to layer in them on top of each other. If, if you had to choose one thing, it would be vaccines and boosting. Second best would be a good mask. Ian wonders because you can detect cigarette smoke, for example, at such a distance, wondering if that is a proxy for the spread of COVID. But if you just quickly elaborate on sort of the difference between being able to detect smoke versus having a concentration of of COVID-19 sufficient to cause illness. No, yes. I mean, I think that's a good analogy. If And, and also you can test your mask if you can because you can smell the smoke within, behind a cloth mask, it's probably not going to filter all of that in. And that's why with wildlife, uh, wildfires, California wildfires, you, you don't get protection by using a cloth mask or surgical mask. You, you need an N95 because it, it filters out those very, very small particles, uh, PM 2.5, uh, so it doesn't get into your body. So it's the same concept. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, thank you, sir, for being with us. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, I hope you know how much those of us in Southern California think of you and value your expertise. You've got quite a fan club here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Larry. I love Southern California. Well, speaking of families, while both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have been approved for nearly every age group, children under five are still ineligible. Pfizer's gone back to the drawing board after its two-shot regimen failed to produce an acceptable immune response in children, and results from Moderna's pediatric trials aren't expected until March. With the Omicron variant seeing a dramatic rise in cases, parents with children under five are particularly anxious, awaiting approval for a vaccine and trying to make some difficult decisions that involve child care, school, family gatherings, and playtime between their kids and others. Joining us to talk about that challenge is Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Dr. Blumberg, so good to have you back with us. 
Good to be back, Larry. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So let's talk about what what you're hearing from the parents of your patients. What are their biggest stressors around this? I think it's, as you mentioned, what about school? What about daycare? What about play dates? And this has been going on for so long. People are are frustrated and they want their children to be protected for their own purposes, to protect their children themselves, but also because there's concern that the child may get infected and then bring it back into the household. And many families have vulnerable members. I also wonder about the stress on the parents, because, you know, in many households, you may have disagreement between the two parents over, you know, what what they what they think is a safe practice for their child. And have you been exposed to some of that stress or has that been shared with you? Oh, yeah, certainly that you have one member who's more conservative than the other one who's got a lower threshold for just being tired of all this and saying these restrictions have to stop. So, yeah, I've certainly seen these these disagreements. And, you know, the only way that I can think of to resolve it fairly is, you know, I always say just go with the more conservative person because otherwise it's just not going to work. Um, and so so I, that's that's been my recommendation is defer to the more conservative person in that circumstance, because if you end up getting an infection in the household, you know, the, the more conservative spouse is like never going to forgive the other one. Right. Well, good point. And to what degree, you know, is there a risk of of the youngest kids getting COVID? And, and if they do, what's the potential risk involved? Because, as you know, we talked about in all your many visits, so much of this is is in trying to determine risk, reward, um, social factors for kids if they're not getting together or not in school. So, um, you know, what what's your advice on the comparative degree of risk in young children? Now, the main risk is for older adults um, and for those who have uh, underlying conditions that predispose them to more severe infection. And in fact, in families, when families have transmission within the household, 90% of the time it's because the adults bring the infection into the household and transmit to kids. It's much less common for children to bring it into the household and then transmit to the adult. So we know how important um, in-person learning is for children, for their mental health for, and for their physical health also. So I do encourage parents to continue to send their children to school, to continue to participate in, in social activities that they would consider safe. But realizing that for children, um, you know, there, ha- there have been more than a thousand deaths in the U.S., so it can be severe in children. There's been more than 30,000 hospitalizations for children. So it, it's not that there's no risk for children either. But to put that in context, when you look at the size of the population of, of kids, um, obviously it's concerning and no one wants their child to be the one. But put that in perspective, if you will, of, of you know, the, the comparative risks for kids in the world. Yeah. So, for example, in the U.S., there's been an increasing proportion of children who uh, are, are accounting for infections. Um, but children under 18 in the U.S. make up 22 percent of the U.S. population. And for the week ending January 6th, children accounted for 17 percent of reported cases. So they're still underrepresented, relatively protected compared to those 18 years of age and older. We're talking with UC Davis Children's Hospital Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Dr. Dean Blumberg joins us regularly on Air Talk. If you're a parent of an under five year old, 
world. I'd like to hear your thoughts about what you're going through, your questions for our guests. And we're not just talking about the physical side of this medically, but also the psychological and mental side of that. Our uh, best way to contact us is atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location. And speaking of the psychological side of this, Associate Professor of Social Work at USC, Dorian Traub, joins us. Dorian is co-director of the Center for the Changing Family, which studies mental and physical health as it relates to family systems. Thank you so much, Professor, for being with us. It's my pleasure. So share with us uh, how you're helping parents navigate uh, all these uh, stressors and and competing priorities. Right. So I think there's a three prong of of stressors that families are dealing with. There's obviously the health component that we just spoke about. Uh, Then there's the psychosocial development component. And especially for those, those, our littlest learners, our zero to five-year-old children, social interaction is a key piece of how they grow and develop. And there's some emerging evidence coming out of Columbia University pointing to the fact that a lot of our children born during this COVID pandemic are screening as having some minor delays in in their child development metrics, uh, likely linked to the stress under which they're developing in, in social isolation. So that places parents in a challenging situation to determine whether or not it's important to try to socially isolate, especially if you have a family that has individuals who are medically compromised um, or access, uh, you know, other outlets in which children can socialize. And then the third component is the fact that um, the pandemic has really eroded a lot of our early childhood education and care sector. Um, We've seen an unprecedented number of Teachers leave early childhood education, partially related to the fact that they are not paid a living wage, and then partially related to the fact that they have their own children they have to care for, um, or that they have become ill themselves and have to quarantine. And we don't have a good system at all for using substitute uh, care providers. Um, And if your child is in in a setting that is a family child care home, where you're taking your child to somebody's private home, to be cared for. If, if that person who runs that program is sick, there is no backup. And so it is exceptionally disruptive uh, for families just trying to maintain their own employment because there's so little backup for caring for young children right now. Uh, Professor Traub, are, are there are there resources available for parents to to you know, talk with others, groups, for example, to talk with other parents in similar circumstances, or you know, or parents pretty much on their own. Well, I think it depends on the parent, and I think it depends on the setting in which their child is engaged. We see a lot of early Head Start programs who have wonderful, robust networks that are built into that model um, to, to support families. Uh, there's the beautiful aspect of, of social media is that there are a lot of parent groups that emerge on social media and pitch in for one another um, during these settings, I'm sorry, during these crises. But I will say that there is no kind of formalized county or state approach that really kind of meets the needs of all families. We just don't have that type of setting. 
We're talking with USC Associate Professor of Social Work, Dorian Traub. Uh, she co-directs the Center for the Changing Family. Also with us, KPECC and LAist Early Childhood Education reporter, Mariana Dale. Mariana, great to have you with us this morning. So in your reporting, what have, what have you found about this issue? Yeah, so not only are parents like dealing with the fact that they are very worried that their unvaccinated children are vulnerable to this virus. But the mental load is really taking a toll right now. It's day after day of having to make decisions that parents really perceive as as determining the health and well-being of their families. And it's exhausting for people. And we I've been talking to some researchers and even before the pandemic, this mental load, this weight of anticipating decisions making, doing research, what do we do if childcare closes? That already fell to mothers in many cases. And that is continuing to be true through the pandemic. And without uh, a vaccine in sight, people are just wondering, when is this going to end? I've been hearing from people that they feel like they're in a time warp. We're back a year ago um, in terms of their levels of stress, except now you know, they don't know when any relief is going to come. Well, and and the financial part of this that I know you've looked at is is so tough because for so many parents, if they have to stay home to take care of their kids and they're working an hourly job and just getting by to lose those hours. And, you know, in some cases they may not have an understanding, um, you know, manager and, and you know, they get a lot of flack or potentially even lose a job. I mean, all that stressor, piled on top of dealing with concerns about the health and well-being of their child. Right. And it's important to know that in California last year, there was extra paid leave in the state for a lot of people. And people could use that not only if they themselves got sick, but if they had to care for a family member or a child who was sick or had to quarantine because maybe they were exposed to a case elsewhere. And that doesn't exists this year. And so that's one less resource that parents have to navigate this time. Michelle emailed us at atcomments at kpcc.org. I think the big thing for me as a mom of a two-year-old and a four-year-old, on top of general anxiety with COVID, is the decision fatigue around every decision to, decision to be made as it relates to my young children. Michelle, boy, is that understandable. Uh, Sharon in the city of Orange emailed, I have two children under the age of three. They both attend daycare. Their daycare just had its first case of COVID. I worry constantly about my children contracting COVID. I don't think any parent wants to see their child sick, and I'd also never want to unwittingly get another family member or another child at daycare sick. The past two years have been mentally exhausting and with no real end in sight. I wonder sometimes if all the precautions I'm taking are worth the social and emotional impact it may be having on my kids. That's Sharon in the city of Orange. So um, parents have a lot that they're dealing with. That includes Dr. Rashmi Rao, uh, who is with UCLA. Dr. Rao has three children, a six-year-old, three-year-old, and a five-month-old. Thank you so much, Rashmi, for being with us. Share with us what you're dealing with, with having two kids not able to be vaccinated and and just the six-year-old being vaccinated. 
Yeah. Hey, Larry, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, I I completely agree with all the callers that have called in. Um, It's definitely a tough time for parents. I mean, I've got one kid who is vaccinated, so that's a little bit of comfort, but two very little kids who are not vaccinated. And so, you know, I can I can understand the anxiety that the other parents are feeling because I definitely feel it as well. And, you know, I think it's an example of how we have to make different decisions based on different children and the circumstances. Um, Our six-year-old is going to school, but our preschooler, we've actually held back um, just for a couple of weeks to try and ride out the surge. Um, Just because we do have a a baby who is less than a year old and considered to be at the highest risk category. And so it's definitely difficult. I mean, I think we're lucky. We have good support and resources, but my my heart goes out to all the parents who are struggling in many of the similar situations and may not have uh, similar support at home. When when you get down, and I'm assuming you do because it, that's human nature in your circumstance, how do you how do you sort of move forward, get yourself out of that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, I rely more on the science, you know, being a physician myself, um, it gives me some comfort to kind of look at the data um, and look at the fact that overall, um, everything is better than it was two, two years ago in the sense that we do have different tools um, and we do have treatments now. Um, and so for me, I think it's just kind of uh, playing the long game, looking at the data and just hoping that this will get better. Rashmi, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your circumstance, Dr. Rashmi uh, Rao, joining us. Uh, also with us is Manpreet Dillon Brar. Uh, share with us about uh, your son particularly and, and some of the extra steps you have to take to keep him safe. Manpreet, are you there? Okay, we'll try and get uh, Munpreet back. Uh, let me go back to Dr. Dean Blumberg. And, you know, we just had a physician, Dr. Rao, talking about her experiences. And, you know, it's got to be very tough for, for parents in all these different circumstances, because if you're a physician, you've got, you know, or a healthcare professional, you've got all the things, stressors at work you're dealing with with COVID. If you're, you know, a child care person, you've got everything you're dealing with with there in, in the child care field, um, people who are on the front lines dealing with the pub. All of these are different stressors. And, you know, how... What would be great is if people had some sort of an outlet to talk with people who had, you know, closer to their own individual circumstances going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that Professor Traub mentioned social media because social media does get a lot of criticism and much of it is, of course, well-deserved. But social media really does give people the opportunity to connect in a place if they don't, even when they're not interacting them with them in the same geographic area. So I find this has been especially important for people in rural communities and also for minorities who just may not have members of their community geographically close with them to interact with. Um, and then they can find sources of support through these groups. We have Idy and Irvine emailed. What's also hurtful to families is when libraries and cities shut down outdoor story time and outdoor programs that are very low risk. Manpreet, I think we have you back now. Thank you so much. You share with us about uh, how you're dealing uh, with your son's condition and vulnerability. Hi, Larry. Thank you so much for letting me share my experience. So I I think it's important to say that uh, I'm an assistant professor of child development at Cal State University and also a parent of a 17-month-old toddler who was born in August 2020 um, and is a congenital heart defect survivor, So, which means that his heart was repaired through open heart surgery when he was an infant, putting him at 
a higher risk category and he's under five, so he's not vaccinated. Um, and for me, I know personally, every parent I know is making their own risk assessment decision, but this has just been going on for two years where I'm just taking things one day at a time. Um, and I'm making decisions for my child's safety from before he was born that I know a lot of other parents didn't have to make. Um, but I just feel like I'm, I keep trying to keep my kiddos safe. And to do that, I've had to work overnight and take care of him during the day. And at this point, I don't even know what the sleep deprivation looks like. Um, but the first time in January, I was, or, you know, at the beginning of this year, I was feeling like, great, my kid is healed from his open heart surgery. I feel confident. I have the resources. Maybe I can finally get him in, enrolled in childcare. And then this new surge hit. Ugh. Manpreet, do you have any assistance from other family members or, or anybody to help you? Yeah, that's what made it even, I think, more challenging, Larry, because um, I'm I'm Indian. I was born in India. I immigrated here. And something we know from my family is when you're when you give birth, you're never left alone. <laughs> you're 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 helped. But this pandemic has made all of that even more challenging. Wow. I had conversations with even my parents and my in-laws about why it's important for them to wear a mask around the baby who's not vaccinated. And I don't have consistent help. Every now and here, my family members have come when they'll listen and, you know, my, my parents will come help and they'll put on a mask and help here and there, but nothing consistent while I'm trying to teach three classes from uh. home, technically. Boy, uh, exhausting. Munpreet, thank you so much for sharing your experience. We appreciate it. Uh, and let me try and quickly get in here. Uh, Madeline, Madeline, just real quickly, what, what's your experience with this as a parent? Well, I'm currently home with my two kids right now because our daycare, which is wonderful, and we're so lucky that they have been open this whole time. But um, whenever there's a positive case or an exposure, they have to close that classroom. And so now with so many more positive cases in this third wave, um, every time I open my email, it's like another time that I have to take off work with no notice. And so it just becomes very stressful um, not knowing when I'm going to have to take off work. And then when I'm out of days, I'm out of days. And so my husband and I are kind of um, bracing ourselves for when we don't have any more days and we can't take off any more work and we just we don't know what to do. So it's just been really stressful with that. Um, like you never know what, when it's going to happen and you never know. It's just, you know, it creates a lot of anxiety. It gives uh, new meaning to having to be resilient. Madeline, very difficult. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of our callers who shared their experiences, as well as our guests, uh, Professor Dorian Traub of USC, our own Mariana Dale, who covers early childhood education, and Dr. Dean Blumberg of UC Davis. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.